Warning, the following podcast contains spoilers for all published books in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. G'day and welcome to Krakencast. This is the oceanic branch of the Vassals of Kingsgrave's Game of Thrones review series. Today we will be discussing episode 5 of season 5, entitled Kill the Boy. My name is Duncan, or Valkris on the forums, and joining me today from New Zealand, we have Joseph. G'day, I go by Chow Gamer on the forums. And from Indonesia, we have Silvana. Hi Silvana, Silvobri on the forums. Well, welcome back guys, thanks for coming on to this second Krakencast for this season. Uh, Shall we jump straight into Lemon Cakes? Joseph, would you like to start? Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, On the whole, I was pretty impressed with the episode. Like, when I compare it to last week, I'm not sure it's as good, but it's so close, I really can't justify giving it anything lower. So yeah, uh, 3.5 again for me. It was great to see lots of Stannis, so I'm happy. Yes, the Stannis supporters were very pleased with this episode, I imagine. It's about time they're starting to get a Stannis I can like. Early <laughs> yeah. Stannis was infuriating. Now oh. now I'm much more on board. He's so good this season. I love it. <laughs> what about you, Silvana? Oh, well, I got a surprise for you guys. I gave it uh, four lemon cakes. Yay! Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. I'm surprised with myself. Like, seriously. Abandon um, your posts. I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I, I become zen now for Game of Thrones. You know, uh, I was like, okay, I've just, you know, just enjoyed the ride without thinking too much, maybe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for lemon cakes. Oh, God. I was expecting myself to tweet to uh, Brian Cockman on Twitter, you know, protesting all the changes, but I did not. <laughs> you had your Twitter account ready. <laughs> yes, both my Twitter accounts. Your, your pen but dipped now. in blood. But I think it's a very solid episode. Um, and we, uh, there are not too many places uh so it's more focused and i think that the writing is very very good and i only have a few nitpicks but not too much so i'm i'm, I'm pretty uh, happy with myself and the episode as well hopefully they, they can keep up <laughs> um yeah i guess for me this felt like the most a dance with dragons-esque episode to date despite all the changes because it was all about the north and marine and it was all about, you know, Danny and John's struggle with governance and the toll that it takes and all that stuff that that, that book was about. Um, and it's offset so poignantly by the Tyrion and Joris scene at the end where these two characters who are at sort of the opposite ends of the spectrum, you know, completely powerless and alone and broken, contemplating the, the, the silences of Valeria. Um, and I've said it before, like, as you say, Solana, I, I find these types of episodes much more satisfying where they're only cutting between three or four locations rather than seven or eight. So we get time to flesh out the detail of the world. And because they're not constantly cutting, you become much more engrossed in what's happening on screen to the point where, you know, the troubles of King's Landing and Dawn and Bravos just kind of fade into white noise, which is what the experience of reading the books is like for me. I guess some people have argued it's a bit of a table setting episode. You know, a lot of plans are set up that won't necessarily be paid off until later in the season. But on like a writing and a pacing level, I, I agree. Yeah, I thought it was just top notch. So I'll probably give it 4.5 lemon cakes. You know, you got to give, you got to leave a bit of room for like the the barnstorming episodes towards the end. But yeah, I, I agree with you guys. Very impressive episode. 
Um, but let's get into it. Uh, we'll go by location and just talk about all the different uh, scenes in this episode. Starting with uh, Marine, I think. I think we, we ended with Marine last episode. Well, let's start with it here. So, uh, kicking off from last week's explosive events, in response to the murder of Sir Barriston, Denny rounds up the leaders of each of Marine's great families and forces them into the catacombs at Spearpoint. One leader is roasted and consumed by dragon, while the others quiver in fear. What did you guys think of this? Fire well, we and blood. Get... Yeah, fire yeah, and blood, get... yeah. <laughs> That's what I, what I want to see in my Danny storyline, so I'm happy with it. Yeah, she's showing a bit of, uh, you know, the, the Targaryen's uh, craziness, uh, Ares, so Danny gone Ares. So, yeah, I kind of enjoyed it. Uh, some people are saying that oh it's it's not it's totally not book Danny. I mean she will not be you know deliberately sending people you know to get eaten by by her dragons. But well, <laughs> oh I reckon she would. Uh, I reckon yeah. if we watch the past three books. That's that's definitely the mindset she can slip into at times. And she's and it, angry because of Darius then. Uh, definitely, I think yeah, yeah. Danny's really frightening in this scene, and it shows you how quickly she can switch from that nurturing mother sort of character to that ruthless murderer character. Which I don't think we realize, you know, how often she switches into that. Like the the end of season one or book one is probably the most obvious example where she burns Mary Mazdua, and it's that just complete lack of emotion. Like I will not scream, you will scream. That that like yeah, it's it's the dragon side. If 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 Danny is two parts, you know, the mother and the dragon. This is definitely the dragon side. And I also like his there in this scene. He's showing some courage, I guess. I think I like this his there, uh, but rather than the book his there. Yeah, I agree. He's much more sympathetic and sort of calm and patient. I like how how his there was. He sort of stood firm, and then he was being brave. But I do also like how he admits later, "Oh no, I was terrified. I just didn't want to die like a coward." Like, that was very humanizing and very sort of yeah. Yeah, a, yeah. A nice touch uh, on the writers. Definitely, because yeah. in the books, he's he feels like a really sleazy sort of politician. Everyone from all sides are trying to mm. manipulate Danny, but here it's like, this is just a person. He's afraid he's going to die. You know, if if you'd come to that scene without any other prior knowledge of the show, Danny is the monster in that scene, and this poor Hisdar is the sympathetic um, hero. Yeah. Uh, I remember Danny. Uh, every time she remembers his dar in the books, he always said, "Oh, his dar of the tepid kisses." <laughs> yeah. But now, I mean, in, in the TV show, better opinion of him. It's yeah, well, well, Danny's very passionate, and his dar is very calculating and um, just level-headed. I guess is probably the best way to describe him. But uh, yeah, we get the reaction to Barristan. I still don't know what to think about him dying because I really like his scenes towards the end of Dance of Dragons, him like, you know, binding up the city, reverting, the city tearing itself apart. But uh, I thought it was interesting, like, Danny's grief kind of just numbs her to sympathy and reason, which is kind of what we see, you know, at the end of book one again, her grief over the death of her child. It kind of, it brings out the dragon side of her, the fire and blood side of her. It justifies that, that sort of violent, murderous rage, which I think is definitely a theme for Daenerys' character arc. I'm also pretty sad that we missed out on the. Uh, it's probably one of my favorite scenes in the series is when Barristan goes to arrest Hisdar because it parallels Ned quite well, doing like the sort of irrationally honorable thing and just marching in there to arrest himself. And it was I remember reading it. I was very tense, sort of worried. Like Game of Thrones had been desensitized to sort of expecting the hero to win because he's the hero, but then Barristan just threw down and just straight murdered his Dar's bodyguard, and that stuck out for me. 
was one of my favorite scenes. Yeah, definitely. And what's interesting yeah. about that scene is he thinks like I used as he's as he's um, leading the king away in handcuffs or whatever it is. He thinks I used to be a king's guard. What am I now? So it's there's an interesting kind of conflict of identity. Even though we get like only four chapters with Barristan, there's a, there's a cool little conflict that he goes through. I think my favorite line in the books with Barristan is like uh, I think Shavepate says you know, would you break the Queen's peace? And he's like, I would shatter it. <laughs> it's like, hell yeah. And just imagine the Batman theme, like, st- screaming over the soundtrack at that point. <laughs> yes. But it is interesting because, like, the final bit of counsel, probably the only bit of counsel that, that Barristan's been allowed to, to give Danny on the show was to caution the Mad King is part of your heritage. That insanity is in your veins and you need to resist that. You need to sue for peace you need to be a good ruler you need to govern wisely and then as soon as he dies it's like that that piece of counsel is it dies with him and she goes into full fire and blood mode and she's definitely like that look of sort of lust on her eyes as she's watching Drogo uh, as one of the Viserion or, or Rhaegal or whatever the dragon is as he's devouring that that screaming noble just the yeah it felt very mad king to me as she's just kind of reveling in the horror before her and the power that she feels yeah. that was how they did it was good. Could, like the, the the book was better, but Barristan in the show was completely fine and enjoyable as a sort of by itself. And it, the sort of there is an impact to it in terms of what Danny is is having to go through. Um, but yeah, let's let's move on to the other half of the Marine storyline. So uh, Masande nurses the wounded Grey Worm back to health, and he admits his love to her. In a bid to restore order to Meireen, Danny agrees to reopen the fighting pits, but to free men only, and also to wed Hizdazo Lorak as a symbol of her respect for their culture. Um, so what do you guys think of the Masande Grey Worm love plot? <laughs> well, um, I think... The first it's not, it's thing, not very uh, popular the in the fandom, I know. <laughs> Yeah, the first thing I, I was thinking is that, or oh, this one thinks you are too old for her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm still imagining, you know, Miss Sunday, the, the uh, amber-eyed uh, child from the, what is it, not? <laughs> yeah. But we kind of, you know, we were already predicted uh, this scene anyway. It's all over in the previews and the teasers. So, yeah, okay. I mean, they need some a bit of romance this season, so why not? I'm just entirely uninterested. I don't dislike it. It's just incredibly boring to me. Yeah, I, I guess I like the scenes maybe in like an abstract way. I mean, I don't dislike it. I it's fine. Like I don't there's far worse stuff mm-hmm. in the show. But I guess I like it because I feel like it's important that you actually show the perspective of the former slaves and what they're actually going through. Because Danny's storyline is, you know, in the books it's big and bold and she's this hero to these people and she's protecting the weak and defeating the wicked. It's, you know, it's very exciting on a macro level and it has all these geopolitical implications. But Martin never really explored how the slaves are actually responding to that. So I think... Missandei and Grey Worm are an interesting microcosm of that, and we we see, I guess, the like how they're sort of recovering psychologically, um, and how they're figuring out how they're like people in their own right, and they have their own thoughts and desires outside of what Danny what Danny wants. So I don't know. I kind of enjoyed it in that through that lens. Mm. Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll amend my statement. I like them as characters, but the romantic subplot is the thing I'm just uninterested in. But yeah, it's, I, I do enjoy seeing the screen time, uh, screen time for them both. And I think Grey Worms, I was sort of hesitant with the casting of Grey Worms actor for the first couple episodes he was in, but I've really warmed to him. 
And I think the, the actor does a great job of playing Grey Worm. Yeah, I agree. They're really yeah. interesting characters in their own right. Um, but yeah, the, rom- the romance might not necessarily work uh, as well as they anticipated. But um, I mean, it's not like full on. It's not like we're spending episode after episode with it. It is very drawn out. I think it started some point in season four and when we're finally getting the first kiss. So it's not like <laughs> Roz or anything. <laughs> Well, and in all honesty, I know a lot of uh, just show watchers that haven't read the books that do quite like the subplot. The sort of most of the backlash I've noticed is from book readers that are probably more angry at the change than angry at the Mm. actual romance in absolute terms. Yeah, and it might also be a response to that terrible final scene of uh, season three where it's just Danny the white dot in a sea of brown like it's kind of saying you know there are other you know we're actually going to give a voice to these other non-white characters there there are other human beings in this world it's not just Danny the white savior you know colonizing all the the wicked savages they they have better things to do than hold up their white master sort of thing they don't exist solely to react to Danny's awesomeness but yeah, I guess back to Danny. She sort of she counsels with Miss Ande, and she realizes she's probably gone too far. That she should probably have heeded Barrison's advice. That there is a sort of a madness and a bloodlust in her veins, and she needs to restrain that. It almost sort of goes back to the title of the episode, "Kill the Boy," because that is almost a childish juvenile instinct to to just burn everything just to get your own way. It's a very short-term solution. An adult, I guess, sees the bigger picture. An adult works for the greater good. She kind of has to grow up. Yeah, and, and her council is just now consisted of Missandei and Dario. <laughs> just, the other extremes. <laughs> yeah, Muncie and Cersei definitely has to put a vacancy notice. <laughs> Advisors needed. <laughs> I mean, when when Dario is your only council, you basically have no council. I, I guess his Dario is the other counselor. <laughs> right, right, the kind right. of dual councillors, you know, one councils war, the other councils peace. So that, that might be an interesting dynamic going forward now that they're kind of the dual sides of uh, Danny's kind of personality. Because she, lo- she, she loves one, but she's having to marry the other. It's a rough situation. I wouldn't trust either of those two as advisors, personally. Well, showed his Dar, I would definitely trust over show um, Dario. Oh, would you? Ugh, I, I think it's bad and worse, really. Although, in, she- in a weird way, Dario is almost the most trustworthy because he's a complete snake, and you can trust a snake to be a snake. He just wants to kill everyone. Mm, well, yeah, no, he's, he's, the good thing about Dario is that he's definitely on Danny's side. He has no ulterior motives. He just kind of lives for the moment. He's like, you know, these people are disrespecting you. You know, get some. You're you're the boss. Discipline them. Yeah, just ask, what would Dario do next time those locals are talking smack? (laughs) And then do not do that thing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Theoretically, we'll be seeing uh, Tyrion there soon. So that that should fluff up the ranks with actual capable advisors. Oh, my God. Ah, yes. Tyrion and... And we... Danny, that'll be yeah. oh, I can't wait for And that. we saw we already saw the pictures anyway. Uh, uh Tyrion sitting right next to uh, I think his daughter Danny. Well, in the yeah, yeah, I mean, bed. It looks like the same scene where she gets absconded by Drogon, so it might not last that long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I hope they do that. That would be amazing. Tyrion's like, God damn it. <laughs> Um, so, what do you guys think about the marriage proposal? Uh, in the books, it was the it, it was not uh, Danny's idea, but they make it uh, Danny's idea in the in the show. I actually think both John and Danny they've made seem less juvenile because it's actually their decision. They haven't been manipulated into these things. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, D- Danny thinks about it. She takes counsel. Missandei says, you know, sometimes you take counsel, sometimes you see a better way. And this is probably yeah. that better way. I mean, the other, what is the alternative? You know, as, as Dario says, fall back to the pyramid and then go through guerrilla style and just kill everyone who might be an enemy. And she knows, you know, even though she might want to do that in her blood, she knows that's a child's way. She knows she's, she's a ruler. She has to decide what kind of ruler she wants to be, how she wants to be perceived. You know, this is her test run, I guess, for the Seven Kingdoms. So, yeah, she knows she has to make peace. Peace is what a ruler should should always aim for. Yeah, but, um, well, my friend said that it's a bit uh, out of the blue, actually, the marriage uh, proposal or the idea. Uh, unless if uh, somebody already mentioned it uh, in passing uh, in previous episodes, then it's it, it won't be too surprising. But suddenly, I mean, yeah. That is true. Like, I feel like she could have just said the fighting pits. Like, did she have to yeah. give away her hand in exactly. marriage as well? Like, that's a pretty big move. Mm-hmm. Almost, it undermines her attempts to go to the Seven Kingdoms. So it, it probably, a lot of show watchers are like, wait a minute, why'd she do that? Couldn't she just give <laughs> the fighting pits? Because the fighting pits is a good idea, as his star says. You know, it creates a distraction. Mm-hmm. It creates a narrative to bind up these warring tribes in Meireen. Yeah. And his star is obviously very surprised. I mean, my goodness. He's, he's kneeling for his life, and then suddenly, okay, I'm going to marry you now. I've already got a suitor <laughs> on my knees. <laughs> that, that was a pretty boss line. <laughs> you danced it was a real turnaround for his duh. He really <laughs> like, lucked out, all things considered. <laughs> yeah, it's a whiplash. One day he's getting ready to be eaten by a dragon, the next day he's king of Meereen. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was kind of thinking... Like, I guess we don't really know what Danny's intentions are in the show. Like, because we know in the books, she's kind of getting sucked in for the long term. She keeps thinking about the Seven Kingdoms and how that dream is slowly slipping away. But I, I heard a theory that maybe Hisdar could be, like, the king of Meireen if they set it up properly. I guess that can't really happen in the books because he is arrested mm. by Barristan. He is a bit of a sleazebag. But this Bar- but this Hisdar, I could actually see becoming a king and, and by marrying him, she kind yeah. of legitimizes him. So maybe that's the kind of shortcut that mm. they use on the show, that once she set everything up, she's broken slavery in the city. They're, they're probably not going to have all the wars outside the walls with Yunkai and Astapor and all that. But once she's defeated the Sons of the Harpy, outlawed slavery, she might be able to leave the city in his Dar's hands if he proves himself to be worthy. Yeah, I agree. Still don't trust his Dar, but... Yeah, yeah I I, I should. I actually kind of think that uh, Book Hisdar's innocent, and that Barristan arrested him uh, incorrectly. But still, don't like on an objective level, it's hard to trust a former master of a slave lord family. Yeah, it's yeah. Just I, mean, sort of... I just think he's a sleazy leader of a noble house. Like, I, I think he's a patsy, probably in the locust scam. Like, it's he's way too conf- conveniently placed to be implicated in that crime for him to have any part in it. But mm. uh, yeah, I, I definitely don't trust him to rule Mayreen. Especially when you see after Danny gets taken away and he's like he's carved a decadent golden dragon throne to sit beside him and he's 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 changed it so he's now being called the most magnificent you know those titles again so it oh, seems, to, who, seems to be a vanity project for him. Who wouldn't do that if they got in a position of power? <laughs> it's, it's first on everyone's to do list, right? Tick. Yeah, cross that off the off the list. Um, any more to say on my ring? Uh, no, not for me. Okay, mm-hmm. let's move on to the wall. So. John tells Tormund that he is willing to allow the wildlings passage south of the wall and to give them lands to settle, and in exchange they will help him man the wall and fight alongside the Night's Watch once winter arrives. Tormund reveals that most of the wildlings will be gathering at Hardhome and that they will need to travel by ship to rescue them, and that John himself will need to come to prove it's no trick. When John reveals his plans to the Night's Watch, there is outrage. 
Ollie and Ed both speak out against making peace with those who slaughtered their kin. John argues that they must put the past behind them, and that every wildling that they don't rescue will become a soldier of the enemy. The true enemy. The only enemy that matters. So what do you guys think of The Wall this episode? Well, well now that Stannis has left it, it's as good as it'll ever get, but yeah. aside yeah. from that... Yeah, they lost good. some good characters, but, uh, but yeah, I was happy with it. Again, it's it's kind of like Danny. John is make, having to make these really tough decisions, um, and you really feel the weight of that burden just when he's by himself in his little chambers and he's leaning against the desk. It's a, it's a tough racket, I guess, being a leader. Um, somebody uh, written it to Oli in the show notes. Uh, I think, yeah. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone is saying that. Uh, I think we were going to see him. I mean, even a more interesting character than Bobo and Mars when he he stabbed John at the end. So. Yep, that's that. That is definitely going to happen, and we get a lot of, I think, gems here. Um, Stan is the grammar king, <laughs> <laughs> and Such and it's beast. apparently a repetition uh, of a scene, a similar scene actually with Davos in season two, where Davos, I think, Davos said, "Oh, four less fingers," and then Stan is at fewer, and Davos is like, "Pardon." <laughs> so it's the same. Yeah, I like that. That's, that's the scene that I thought of when he's saying, you know, call him Sir Jamie Lannister. If nothing else, he's the man's a knight. But I think this scene kind of, <laughs> again, it, it sort of humanizes him in this really tiny way because he's rigid where he's sort of correcting people. He's, he's very stubborn about those little details. Um, yeah. But but when Davos says, what was that? He says, oh, nothing. And to me, that was almost like he's almost aware of how stubborn he is. And he's actually trying to be a bit more flexible. Like he knows that about himself and he's trying to change a little bit, which is yeah. so cute. Yeah, grinding his teeth and just like, you know. Like he's, yeah, he's, he's becoming he's a more mellow kind of person. Oh, mm. <laughs> uh, And the spits, obviously, from uh, Master Amons is also one of the highlights, I think, in the episode. Kill the boy speech. Um, I know one of my friends. You know, he's very, very. He, he likes. I think my master Amon is his favorite character of them all, and he really likes this speech. So he's he's very happy in watching. Uh, it got translated into the screen uh, very well. And oh, and also we got uh, Old Town and Citadel uh, mentioned in the episode, which you know brings uh, the hope for me that Sam will go to Old Town. <laughs> oh my God! Can can Brian Cogman just like write every episode because he's always course correcting yeah. the show back towards the books he's awesome yeah, yeah that's why uh, call me so, yeah. call me cynical but i'd notice or call me a book purist even but i did notice the uh the two episodes i've liked this season so far have been not written by the showrunners so that's correlation doesn't imply causation but it is there and interesting true yeah mm. I, I don't know if that is purism or it's just kind of i just i guess i just like hearing about all the little details of the world uh, it feels like we're just kind of a lot of the time we're just jumping from plot beat to, to plot beat like they're almost going too far in condensing the material um it's nice to just live in the world a little bit and just have characters talk about something other than the upcoming battle for the for the north or winter it's just like them living out their lives like i like that day-to-day kind of aspect of, of the show and it's it's what you sort of want in fantasy is all those little tidbits and all that little world building yeah, like it's sort the of, world outside the plot. That's what makes it fantasy. Yeah, because in fantasy, the, the world is itself a character. And when you get like writers like Cogman who just kind of sprinkle details and it sort of yeah it makes everything more three-dimensional and more interesting. Like I liked the uh, Stannis when he was talking to Sam and he said the pointed out, ah, oh, your father was the only person that ever defeated my brother at the Battle of Ashford. 
and just sort of that slight callback and just sort of rounding out the world and and developing all the characters connected to it. It's a nice little wrinkle to Sam's character because we know from season one he has trouble with his father. He lives with that kind of self-loathing that's been instilled to him, like he's weak, he's a coward, he's fat, blah, 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 blah. But on the Night's Watch, he's found something something else. He's found strength in other areas. And and that the the speech about Old Town is kind of like him possibly becoming this sort of protege to Maester Eamon and becoming his replacement on the wall. So he's found, he's etched out a new part to his life. It's not necessarily the glorious warrior that his father probably wanted him to be, but it's something equally as important. That's what I really liked about Stannis's conversation with them. Was sort of, it started off with like Stannis, this warrior and strategist and man of action, like, ah, oh, you're Samuel Tarly, like with disbelief, like I knew your father, you're nothing like him. And then after a minute or two of chatting, Stannis is just sort of acknowledges that warriors are useful, but we also need learned men. Because then that are of use, and that sort of and sort of encouraging Sam to keep reading. There's sort of a nice contrast to Randall Tarly, who's very much similar to Stannis, but came down on the exact opposite way for that that one specific trait. It's a a nice little fatherly scene where he says, "Keep on." reading Samuel Tali. And it also shows that Stannis is a person that sees worth in the people that everyone else thinks are worthless, like namely Davos, this smuggler that everyone else spits on. But, you know, Stannis sees something valuable in him, and he has proved very valuable for Stannis. So it's kind of like that's the same relationship that John and Sam have. This is why Stannis is clearly the best candidate for king, naturally. Hey! He's getting there, he's getting there. King Stannis. <laughs> that's actually something, uh... I've noticed in a few places online, people have written that a lot of uh, show watchers, when they first heard "Kill the Boy," they a lot of people thought they were referring to Ollie for a split second, and that people that didn't know the quote from the books thought Maester Aemon was just arbitrarily recommending that John murder his steward. Mm. It's kind of a meta thing, like kill him now, John, because he'll kill you later. Yeah, I wonder if that was intentional on the part of the writers, like just sort of something that's going to seem much more macabre in hindsight. And and it is that thing. You know, this is what we see in this episode. John is damaging these key relationships that his friends. You know, it's not his enemies that are going to stab him in the back. It's not Alistair Thorne. It's Ollie and Ed. Well, I hope it's not Ed, but you know, it's it, those are the ones who speak against him, who are almost feel mm-hmm. betrayed by his decision to let the wild things through. And it's great. Like, it's a great sort of grey area. You know, both sides are perfectly justified in their arguments. Ollie and Ed have every right to hate the wildlings and be horrified by John's decision. And John, as a leader, has every right to look strategically and say, yes, the wildlings have done horrible things to us and we've done horrible things to them. But at the end of the day, these are people. They're not monsters. We can try and forge a peace with them that's what a good ruler would do we can try and live side by side and end this meaningless war that we've been fighting because the true enemy is out there and that's this so it's, it's a sort of a philosophical decision but also a practical decision on john's part to do this um and i think it's very impressive like i think it definitely could have been done better in the books he makes a lot of mistakes but his overall strategy i think is noble but yeah, it definitely it, it undermines his position. It creates enemies in the watch, and that undermine it, it destabilizes the watch to a large extent. So yeah, it's it's definitely shaky ground that John's on at the moment. Yeah, it's uh, similar with Nat, I guess. Uh, they both uh, underestimated the other players. Um, Nat underestimated Littlefinger, and then John underestimated uh, you know the history, thousands of years of hatred 
between um, the Wildlings and the Night's Watch. So I guess um, I, I personally think that John needs to prepare his ground first before making such public announcement that they're going to save all these wildlings, you know, securing yeah. allies first. So somebody can speak, you know, not only Sam, you know, but but the others. But apparently they uh, he maybe he didn't have time to do that. But if only he has, uh, you know, that kind of initiative. Yeah, he's not enough of a, of a politician to make those kind mm. of moves. He just assumes, I'm the Lord Commander, they have to do what I say. But, yeah, it's uh, it's not that easy. It's interesting to think about other characters in the actual Seven Kingdoms, though, like Ned and Littlefinger and Cersei and all that, because they're almost playing by the game that's already there. Whereas John and Danny, I feel like, very much highlighted in this episode, they're actually trying to change things. You know, John is trying to upset a tradition that's been going on for 5,000 years. You know, the Night's Watch mm. versus the Wildlings. Same with Danny. She's trying to break slavery, this thing that defines Meereen as a culture. So, yeah, I, I find that very interesting. It's breaking. It's it's revolution. Uh, but it, it can be very bloody as well. And uh, Melisandre going with Stannis. What do you think? So she won't be there to resurrect, uh, resurrect John. Melisandre and Shireen and Selyse and yeah. Davos. All the good characters yeah. are leaving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, is toast, obviously. <laughs> I'm sure she, she gets burned by Melisandre at the end Aww. if something bad happened to Stannis. The fact that all the women are going with Stannis South kind of makes an interesting context for the, I want to say it's a clip in the one of the early trailers for the whole season that shows Selyse like falling to the ground in the snow crying. Yeah. Sort of that's yeah. This is interesting. So a we're on uncharted territory, but having seen that little glimpse, sort of maybe interesting to maybe see how it'll play out. Sorry, maybe it's Stannis that dies. That's why she's falling into the snow because she doesn't even like Selyse. Sorry, mm, she doesn't yeah. like Shireen. Well, she probably yeah. doesn't like herself either. Yeah. To be fair. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> or Melisandre. Maybe Melisandre dies unexpectedly and she falls to the snow. Yeah. Like, there's definitely. It's not going to be what we think it is. It's not going to be, you know, Stannis v. Bolton epic battle. Mm. Stannis coming out on top. It's going to be something unexpected happens on the way there. Mm. I'm thinking. I don't know. We, I want to see the uh, sort of bait and switch that it looks like Martin's doing in the books, how Stannis appears to die, but then just kind of shows up out of nowhere and sort of unreliable narrator uh, is, is sort of implied and Stannis ends up winning. Like, I want to see something like that, but yeah, with his wife and daughter going along with him, it would probably be pretty hard for them to pull that off. It would also be pretty hard to pull that off on the show because unreliable narrator is kind of tricky to do in television and visual media relative to books. I have to mention Shireen and Davos are so cute together. He's like, when the battle comes, promise me you'll, you'll, you'll protect me. Oh. <laughs> and then Celeste comes in and ruins everything. <laughs> Just two sentences. <laughs> I, was, I was like, keep walking, Celeste. We're having a moment over here. <laughs> I like the final exchange between John and Stannis where he... He thanks him and says good luck, and yeah, it was a cool little exchange. We obviously didn't review the episode three, but that look, that nod he gives John after he's just axed Janos Slint mm. is so epic. Uh, I, I involuntarily squealed when uh, I saw that. I had to <laughs> Be, being just to like steady fan. myself. Yeah, <laughs> it was one of my favorite scenes in the books, and to see it on screen just sort of made me made me giddy for a split second. Oh, so good, Stephen Delane just awesome casting definitely this season mm-hmm. is his best work yeah 
I like the his sort of his outfit, his like sort of standard plate melee chain melee thing he's been wearing the whole time, but with the big fur trim, sort of he's he's taken his level up and he's gotten the upgrade and he's ready to get, get back out there after level grinding at the wall. Just casts a long shadow, yeah, definitely. Mm, he looks very sort of big and broad and Robert-like, almost, yeah, yeah, definitely, rather yeah. than the normal wiry like. On the, the Battle of the Blackwater, he didn't have any sort of uh, shoulder pads in his costume, and he didn't look that imposing. But now he's, yeah, with his, his big fur cloak, he's much more broad-shouldered and much more akin to someone like Robert. Um, going back to John for a little bit, what do you reckon about the decision to go to Hardhome? Do you think, I, I think it's confirmed that we'll actually be going there? Yeah, there, there will be the, the big battle there, I think, in episode 9 or, mm. I don't know, 8. Yeah, it's one of the biggest sets. And well, we we don't have Cotter Pike uh, and his fleet uh, in this show. Uh, I mean, John even using Stannis's uh, ships, right? So yeah, I, I think it's 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 logical to have John going there. But uh, I wonder where where would be the this the you know his Julius Caesar scene? Uh, is it in Hardhome or or still at the Wall after he returns? Uh, it'll probably be when he returns and offloads all the wildlings. Hmm. Is he going to okay. make it back with the wildlings? Because just sort of the the way Stannis said, "I need my ships," sort of hints that things might go wrong. And the uh, uh, okay, I see what you mean. Um, well, also in the books, Hardhome was pretty much a shitstorm that ended badly with the things <laughs> yeah. in the water and all. So, is John yeah. being there personally going to make a difference, or is like because if it's a complete failure and he returns home to the wall without wildlings, then all his brothers mm-hmm. are just going to be like, eh. No harm, no foul. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they need a motivation to stab him. So, like, how, yeah. how they progress it is going to be interesting, given the changes. I, I think the ships will be fine. Like, I don't think it's that big of a deal. You know, Stannis is on land at the moment. They're not going to play that big of a factor in any future campaigns. Hmm, no, I don't think it is going to be a big deal, but it seems like they're hyping it up to be, which is got, which is sort of has me thinking. Do you guys think they've done enough to build up the threat of the White Walkers? Because that is the reason that, that John is doing all these things. And to be fair, I don't think they've really built it up as much in the books. Like, we haven't seen them since book three, the beginning of book three. Maybe it's sort of that uh, the scariest monster is the one that you don't see and sort of letting us hype ourselves into a lather over how terrifying they are rather I, than actually seeing them terrifying. I guess, but like, if that's the case, then maybe we should hear about them from the wildlings. Maybe, you know, Tormund should be, like, telling John, you know, you don't know what's out there. They've wiped out thousands of our people. Like, you know, we just haven't heard much about them. We did get hmm. that scene in episode four, I think, of last season, where it's like the baptism ceremony of, of them burning <laughs> Craster's children, which was so oh, yeah. weird. It was like an alien movie or something. <laughs> well, that's written by Brian Cockman. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> The Night King episode, <laughs> the one where we we are, we're like you know freaking out. Oh my God, is this a spoiler? <laughs> <laughs> that was such a freak out moment. <laughs> where are we going? <laughs> so yeah, that, oh, and cool to see uh, White Walkers, White Walkers versus the Night's Watch. Definitely, that's been teased for so long. I hope I hope we see that. In yeah. Rather than the uh, Battle of the Fist of the First Men on the show, which was just like a bunch of sword noises oh, over a black sucked. screen. That sucked. Like, ugh. I guess maybe they didn't have a huge budget, but they could have worked around it a little bit. They could have shown the absolute devastation of that battle. But it's just like mm-hmm. white mist a little bit, and the Night's Watch just kind of stumble out of nowhere and said, oh, let's go home. 
Yeah, like I would have shown it like using sort of snows and mists to obscure all the like baddies. Yeah. But it's not to say I'm necessarily a better director, but that seems like it would have been the way to do it because that sort of keeps the mystique going and then you just see like snows go over a bunch of people and they all die. Yeah, or, or, or even just Sam just kind of stumbling into the, the maester's tent and he just sees everyone's dead, all the ravens are dead, and he just finds one raven and manages to send it off and then cut cut scene or something. Just something to you know emphasize the absolute massacre that, that this incident was. But I guess it's fine. I guess we sort of have to just <laughs> gloss over those weaker aspects of the show. But yeah, I think they've got the budget now. Hopefully we'll get a awesome battle oh, yeah. sequence, possibly in episode 9 between Nightwatch and the White Walkers. Like you hear the people grumble, like, ah, oh, the dragons are on screen, there goes their CGI budget for the next three episodes. <laughs> like, that's what, what people were doing earlier, but now we're getting, God like, big, full-on, half-grown dragons every episode, so yeah. clearly the, the CG budget's just no longer a factor, and they're just throwing buckets of money at animators. Well, yeah, it's hugely successful now, they've got no excuse. That's why they're killing characters, also, to cover the CGI budget. <laughs> Your contract costs too much, Gren. We need it for the yeah. dragons. Yeah, I'm sorry, Mr. Ian. If HBO has enough money to put out a rap album with Snoop Dogg on it, then they can they can give us some more battle scenes. <laughs> yeah, imagine if a rap starts playing over the battle at Hardhome. <laughs> they just use that to close off the battle of Hardhome, and the credits just cut to black, and then just Snoop Dogg rapping starts up. Just John, like floating away in a boat, just puts on some sunglasses, turns, Hardhome just explodes. Oh my god! D and D just pop up with like giving the audience a finger, <laughs> just rolling around in money. <laughs> Fandom just lights itself on fire. <laughs> Um, oh, all right, shall we move on to Winterfell? <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. So, Brienne and Pod have reached the outskirts of Winterfell. They attempt to send a message to Sansa, should she need rescuing. At dinner, Ramsay presents Theon before Sansa and has him apologise for killing the two Stark boys. Roose reveals that his new bride is with child, and Ramsay is noticeably vexed by this new threat to his inheritance. Afterwards, Roos tells his bastard that Stannis means to claim the North as his own and attack Winterfell, and asks him if he will help defend House Bolton's claim as father and son. Ramsay agrees. Um, so yeah, what did you guys think? Um, we, we only see like two minutes of Brienne and Pod, but uh, I heard some speculation that... So they send a message to Sansa to tell her that, you know, she still has friends in the North and if she yeah. needs help to put a candle on this windowsill. And I heard speculation that that might have been a trick by Ramsay because he mentions the phrase the North remembers later in the episode and it might be a trick to test Sansa's loyalty. Um, and we also saw several episodes ago that Ramsay had captured Sirwin, which is possibly where they're staying at the moment. It's not. It's like half a day's ride from Winterfell. So, uh, yeah, I, I, what do you guys think? Is it a trick, or uh, are they actually getting messages to Sansa? Um, I think it's it's the real deal, I think. Uh, I, I, I believe that Theon will be the one who's saving Sansa uh, at the end, whereas in the book he's saving Jean Poole. But I honestly, I, I didn't uh, put a lot of thinking in that, in, that, in that scene. It's just, you know, just went by. I think it's just a filler for me. Uh, I was more excited uh, with the uh, next scenes, with the family dinner. The very dysfunctional family dinner, and it's just interesting because you got to see uh, these two Bolton guys 
in action, uh, interacting with each other, and then uh, Ramsey being a troll. Uh, I think, yeah, <laughs> I, I said in the in the show notes that uh, the, the Boltons are the trolls of Westeros. It's just <laughs> like troll undersells them, <laughs> like ogres, ogres, vampires. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting. Uh, I, we don't know where where this is going, but uh, oh, and and I'd like to say something uh, about Miranda. I I am starting to see a lot of uh, well, some parallels between her character and uh, Miranda Royce in the books. Well, really? first, yeah, I mean, the name's the same. Yeah, that that could not be a coincidence. And then they're kind of like, uh, you know, having a girl talk uh, about the dress a bit. And then uh, Miranda Royce in the books, is, she's also ca- a cunning character. Uh, Littlefinger warned Sansa about uh, Miranda. Uh, and then, uh, and both are also uh, into the guys that San- Sansa uh, was betrothed with. Um, uh, so Miranda likes Harry the heir, and now Miranda is, uh, wants Ramsey. So yeah, I, I see some parallels there. That's true. I don't think Miranda Royce hunts people with a crossbow, though. No, no, no. <laughs> we haven't seen but, it not happen. Yeah, so we it can't, can't be or deny. <laughs> Another thing I saw on the forums was there was a lot of mentions of mothers in this episode. Sort of coincides with Mother's Day. Uh, Miranda is yeah talking to Sansa about her mother, how she helped her sew her dress, and um, yeah, Roos has a lovely little story about Ramsay's mother and uh, Celise, some lovely mothering happening at the wall. Danny too. And Danny feeding yeah. her children. Feeding her children, yeah. <laughs> feeding her children with her other children. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I don't think uh, Sansa's being tricked. I think we're meant to possibly think that, like, because it is like you're supposed to feel a lot of paranoia in Winterfell. You know, Ramsay is this psychologically tricksy person, but I think I think Sansa's okay. Like, I think that's where they're heading towards in the story. Brienne is getting messages out there. We know from the books that there is definitely a lot of sympathy uh, in Winterfell for the Starks. That Stark loyalists are killing off the Boltons one by one and the Freys one by one, so I think it's okay. Um, did you guys notice that the place where she was meant to put the candle, if uh, if she was in trouble, was the same window that Bran fell from? Yeah, yeah. I was wondering if Bran might be, uh, you know, sowing some magic from the far north into the plotline. <laughs> <laughs> Just brainwashing uh, Brienne, and that's how she was able to make it through the swamps without drowning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Divine, divine tree power sustaining her. Yeah, little roots popped up one by one out of nowhere to give them safe passage. Um, you know, I noticed the mention of uh, was it was like Maester Walken by Bruce Bolton. The moment I this is just completely silly, but the moment I heard that, I just immediately thought of Christopher Walken and robes, and just couldn't <laughs> take the scene seriously from that point onwards. Just, only I could do a Christopher Walken impression. <laughs> Can you guys do it? <laughs> Uh, I feel any any impression I could do would be overshadowed by my accent, as shown when I tried to do the uh, Dirty Harry line on the movie roundtable. I'm just not good at quoting. Damn. We need a we need a Christopher Walken impressionist to come on. Um, I really like the scene where Sansa is walking through the hound cages. I know. Because uh, you can just sense the fear as she makes her way deeper and deeper into the the cages, like. This is a nice microcosm of her, her situation in, in Winterfell, but uh, what did you guys think of when she gets to the end and she finds Theon quivering? 
Yeah, I mean, they're bound to meet one way or the other. They're living in the same place, so. But I I, I really like, I mean, uh, Alfie Allen. I think he's one of the most underrated actors in the show. So I always enjoy where, uh, any, any scene he's, he's in. So, yeah, it's good. Yeah, they're an interesting duo, Sansa and Theon. It's not something I considered beforehand, but, uh, like, yeah, in many respects, they're both sort of victims of, you know, very abusive characters, uh, Joffrey and and Ramsay. So it would be sort of poetic for them to uh, help each other out and save each other from, from their respective abusers and, yeah, escape and redeem themselves in that way. So I think that's probably where they're heading, going in the same way as the book. Mm-hmm. Although Brienne kind of mucks that up because she's trying to save Sansa as well, so who's going to save Sansa first? Maybe, maybe neither of them. Maybe Ramsay will just go crazy. <laughs> maybe Stannis. <laughs> well, yeah, there's the uh, the Stanza shipping. They need to meet somehow. That's not going to. Yeah. Happen. <laughs> uh, another red hat. Stannis love his red hats. <laughs> Going back to Miranda and Ramsay, I just I just found them like strutting around naked next to like an open window in the north, presumably sub-zero temperatures, very creepy. Yeah. I wonder if there's just like some like random cleaner just in another tower just watching like this. Huh? What's okay? <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> They're standing very close to the windows, very high up. <laughs> this place has changed since they got new management. <laughs> Wait, wait. I, I think I have an explanation. Remember, uh, Kathleen, um, uh, well, in in one of her first chapters in a Game of Thrones, she said that the, the walls are uh, actually warm or something because they have a, a heat source underneath Winterfell. Oh yeah, and Ned needs to go over yeah. the window to like air himself out. Yeah. So so maybe because they were, they were standing, both of them are standing very near to the to the to the wall. So maybe they're looking for you know warmth. <laughs> Maybe. How high does the uh, hot water in the walls go up, though? Because sort of, if it is geothermal, then that means they're pretty close to ground level, which kind of exacerbates the peeping tom issues. Yeah. Maybe they just don't care, and they're just standing overlooking the courtyard. Need further investigation. <laughs> well, after last week's feathers, now we're talking about <laughs> this. At least, yeah, we're just going over the architecture of the Winterfell. <laughs> Oh, how, does, how do all the hot springs affect the decomposition of the feather, though? We sort of <laughs> assumed that it was cold. <laughs> this changes everything. I think they speculated on the North cast that uh, they made pipes out of, like, unicorn horns. Ah, okay. There's a nice contrast between the creepy violent sex scene between Ramsay and Miranda and the sort of tender love scene between uh, Grey Worm and Miss Ande. Because to me, like, Ramsay is, like, the closest thing to, like, a slaver in, in Westeros, whereas, you know, Missandei and Grey Worm are, like, these recovering slaves. So I, th- I thought that was an interesting echo of one another. But, uh, yeah, Theon's another character who's trying to recover from slavery or redeem himself away from slavery. So I think that's an interesting theme on the show. But we'll I'm see where it goes. arc's going to take him. Because hmm. in the books, it's sort of hinted that that's uh, Arsha's grand plan is to like use him to overturn the King's Moot. But the King's Moot isn't, apparently isn't happening in the show. So sort of where does that leave Theon? It's, it seems like his entire arc is going to serve to be like recovering enough to aid Sansa. And then that'll just close it off. Like Maybe he'll die in the escape attempt because there won't be anything left for him to do. Like, sacrifice himself to get Sansa out to Pod and Brienne, maybe? Like, that would be the best way to end his arc, I think. Him saving yeah. Sansa is like a redemption for mm. for what he did to the Starks. And also, I guess for him, it's almost he has to remember his name. That's kind of 
that's how he ends in A Dance of Dragons. I don't know if they have more planned for him in the books, but that that was like, you know, there's a lot of unsatisfying plot lines in A Dance of Dragons, but that was definitely one of the satisfying ones where he says, I am Theon, don't you remember me? You have to remember your name. So hopefully we see something similar to that because we don't have Asher, so it's basically Sansa. He has to admit that to I am Theon. I'm sorry for what I did, and then, you know, let me rescue you. Um, I did want to mention just the shots inside Winterfell and also the wall I just thought are really beautiful because they're very dark rooms and they have this usually very small stone windows where this uh, white cold light is streaming through and there's this nice fog in the background and the foreground have sort of silhouettes of tables and pots so I really like the the way a lot of scenes are shot there's some nice overhead photography as well uh, when Sansa walks up to the tower and looks up Um, it was nice and also when uh, Tyrion's looking up at the dragon um, oh, did we talk about the din- the dinner scene? We sort of touched on it. Yeah, uh, a bit, I think. It um, was it was really yeah, very long scene. Very much interested in the building tension through awkward silences. I thought that was yeah, very effective uh, screenwriting and, and acting. And Ramsey just kind of just reveling in making everyone uncomfortable and uh, <laughs> ex- demonstrating his, his power over the over yeah. everyone at the dinner table and his power to unnerve them and throw them off. And even Roos seemed to be a little off his kilter. You know, he chastises him afterwards, but at the dinner table he's kind of you know, silenced by Ramsay's insanity as he was yeah, bringing out Theon, parading him in front of everyone, saying, look what I've done, look how I've psychologically broken this person. Don't you see him, Sansa? Aren't you happy? Because I, I couldn't yeah. figure out whether he was trying to unnerved Sansa or, or he genuinely thought she would be pleased to see Theon you know broken yeah. down into a shell of a man uh, maybe a combination of both um, yeah. and I also saw a relief on, on uh, Rose's face after uh, Ramsey finishes you know with him trolling <laughs> there's a relief there he was like oh okay and then uh, when also Ramsey saying that oh that got a bit tense <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's a great actor like he just brings yeah. so much charisma to the role yep. yeah. and I'm poor Walda poor fat Walda <laughs> yeah she has yeah. no clue <laughs> she's just sitting there oh thank you Ramsey <laughs> that is a great yeah that's a great comic relief in those scenes because she's so oblivious mm-hmm. to the, the uh... but yeah it's, it's a really interesting family dynamic and there's almost this perverse kind of like when he says you are my son and it's like this perverse echoing of what Stannis did last episode, where he's like, you are my daughter, Shireen. And it's like, oh, wait a minute, these people are monsters. Why am I, why do I care about these people? It's like <laughs> that, that scene at the in uh, last season where he's like, this is the North, and you will rule as my son. And you just hear the Lion King music start playing. Yeah. <laughs> Everything the snow touches mm. is yours. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's no, so it's, funny. No, they have a weird habit of that. Like, they'll have like a, a father-son moment between the Boltons, and then just play like this like rousing music in the background sort of like if you were watching yeah. the scene without any context you'd assume they were the good guys but like it's, oh the stannis characters coming to like take their home and kill them and help me defend its son yeah it's like they're trying to say like even monsters have family problems that they need to transcend and things like that it's it's an interesting thing that i've never seen that on another show usually the mon you know the bad guy is the bad guy and that's all they are and and for all intents and purposes they are definitely the villain more than any other character in the show you know the the conflicts at the wall and in king's landing and at Meereen are far more complicated it's much more this gray area but you know Roose and Ramsay are these complete villains Stannis is very much it's good guy Stannis versus bad guy Boltons in the in the they north see, 
Stannis definitely seems to uh, have come out under Melisandre's thumb this season. Mm. He sort of that was that's been my big gripe so far is how he sort of gets portrayed as just this one-sided like sort of fundamentalist that just follows uh, his his priestess's instructions. And I don't know if that sort of if it's character development or if they've just realised it's a really bad way to write the character and have just like switched it over in the night without anyone noticing. But yeah, sort of Stannis it's... is more a- unambiguously good by this point as opposed to sort of a, a cat's paw for a fundamentalist. I think it's a bit of both. Like, I think he's definitely evolved from season two to season five, as he did in the books. But yeah, season three and four, they definitely dropped the ball um, and they're trying to right that wrong. Oh, yeah, that's a point. There's no real mention of Locke anymore. It's yeah. It's sort of... I you think with, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, that's a I, shame. I, I love Burn Gorman. He pops Burn up Gorman. everywhere, like in, in yeah. bits and bobs. And I, I like him and everything he's in, but... Just from an in-character perspective, Bruce seems wholly unconcerned with the fact his trusted lieutenants just disappeared into the frozen north <laughs> and not come back. Yeah, you'd think that'd be a catalyst for animosity between the Boltons and the Wall to mistrust uh, John. But uh, they haven't, yeah, they haven't cultivated any of that bastard rivalry that we see in the books yet. Hmm. Like Ramsay seems just completely unfazed by the fact he's a bastard. He sort of accepts it. Like in his, his dialogue with Miranda when he was talking about them getting married, he's like, oh, I was a bastard then. Now, now I'm a noble. Sort of like as like I don't think Book Ramsay would ever admit to being a bastard unless he was like in sort of a really formal situation and he was compelled to by social norms. Well, I think he's sort of used to being like a low-down person, like a bastard, and he trades in torture and treachery because that's what people expect of him. You know, he wasn't expecting to be, you know, he hates the idea that he's a bastard, but he was certainly never expecting to be suddenly a highborn. And he's so used to having to use torture and horror to control people, but he's not really able to do that as openly anymore. He does have to be careful because, you know, Sansa is an important property. You know, he knows his father won't take any of that. He has to be politically. Um, So he's almost doubled down on the side psychological torture he's using that much more than the the violence he's just sort of refining his his psychopathy and i also think the contrast between roos and ramsey is quite interesting because roos is far less openly barbaric and flamboyant but as we see and as he reveals in this story he's no less cruel or monstrous he's no less cutting in his barbs he, he tortures people just as much but he keeps it to himself he doesn't use that as a tool for fear he basically, uh, he's much more cunning about it. So it's this interesting kind of contrast of maturity. These two evil people, but one is far more mature than the other, more deliberate. I can't remember who it was, but I think it was like Theon slash Reek says something in the books about how just sort of looking in Roos's eyes, you can tell he's a hundred times worse than Ramsay. You yeah. just, he's, he's not mm. so overt about it. Uh, yeah, any more to say on Winterfell? Um, just want to say I really like the battle pieces showing uh, Stannis' forces and the Bolton's forces. I think it's really, really cool. Yeah, as, as a table-setting episode, they've definitely yep. done a lot to build up that conflict. We see Stannis marching at the end of this episode, or in the middle of this episode, and we see, you know, Ramsay and Bolton having this touching moment where he's like, I am your son, will you help me defeat Bolton? Yes, I will, father. Yes. <laughs> so that's, they've done, yeah, they've done good, good groundwork for that, for that battle. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's jump to our final location for the episode, the Ruins of Valeria. Jorah and Tyrion take passage through the Ruins of Valeria. They are awed by the sight of Drogon passing overhead, before being abruptly attacked by a mob of stone men. One grabs Tyrion and pulls him into the Smoking Sea, but Jorah manages to save him and drag him ashore. 
Feeling guilty, he cuts Tyrion's bindings. While collecting firewood, Jorah looks down at his wrist and notices a blotch of grayscale where the stonemen touched him. So it's as we predicted last week, Jorah is patient zero. Yeah, I think uh, this is the best part of the episode. It's it's my favorite. I, uh, despite despite their changing from you know uh, why not Roinar why, why not uh, so so they make it uh, the ruins of Valyria. Well, I think uh, this is a but, good example of how some changes are better than the books, frankly. Yeah, of course. I mean, if it if it's the Roinar, then Tyrion has to go for this all this exposition on the Turtle Wars, on the Roinars, on Prince Garion, you know, everything the one in in, in the world of Ice and Fire, probably. But uh, instead, uh, Brian Cockman, uh, I think, wrote a very nice poem yeah. about the Doom Valeria and uh, apparently it is a song uh, it's a ballad sung during uh, Joffrey's wedding um, it's about two lovers you know who's uh, dying during the Doom so and I really really like the, the sequence uh, in this uh, part of the episode and I think the, the stone man is also you know it's as we expected they're, they're awesome uh, I was kind of you know I, I said to myself before Oh my God! I, I hope they don't make the Stone Man, you know, looking like the, uh, you know, the, the guy from Fantastic Four. Uh, God, I forgot. Silver Surfer? Or no, no, no. The yeah, the thing, yeah. The Stretch Man. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thank goodness they they, they make them uh, here very scary. Yeah. Uh, especially in the scene of the Bridge of Sorrows, I guess. And yeah, Jorah is patient zero. We already predicted that. And yeah, it's it's a good build up. And again, it's a great uh, setting as well. You know, uh, there are a lot of you know uh, pan out scene where where you see the silhouettes of Jorah and, and Tyrion after after the river scene, and it's it's really really beautiful. So yeah, yeah. it's 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 a great. It's a great ending for this it's, episode. It's such a gorgeous scene. Um, mm-hmm. Just the way it looked, the long silences, the rocking of the boat, the smoke rising from the water. Yeah, it just feels so still and tragic and melancholic, just the thick sadness of those ruins. And uh, it's I think it's appropriate that Tyrion and Jorah are the characters who are in this place because uh, it sort of reflects where they are in their life. You know, they're exiled, they're lost, they've been shunned. And that's, that's kind of what the stone men are. They're, they're these creatures who've been sent away, doomed to live out their lives in what was once the greatest kingdom on Earth. Um, but now it's just this dead place, and then they lurk in the shadows. And that's yeah another theme that I think is in this season, these characters lurking in the shadows, coming out. You know, the past coming back to haunt us. You know, the Sons of the Harpy, the Faith Militant, the Wildlings behind the wall. It's these exile characters that are coming back to, to sow their revenge. Um... So yeah, we do get this lovely poem that Tyrion and Jorah sing throughout the as they're passing through the ruins, and I love this. Like it's like the the Sansa in in the Winterfell. I could just mm. in the Crypts of Winterfell. I could just have a whole episode of Jorah and Tyrion, you know, slowly moving through Valeria, reciting poetry to each other. But is this a poem from the book you said, or was it was it invented for the show? Uh, no, it's just mentioned uh, in Tyrion's POV uh, in Stone of Swords. Uh, it's one of the songs during Joffrey's wedding. Oh, so they just mentioned the title. Yeah, or not even a title. I, I don't think there's a title. So it's a, just like a, a song sung in High Valyrian by well, some singer. Well, I've got the, the lyrics here on the forum. So it says, um, They held each other close and turned their backs upon the end, the hills that split asunder and the black that ate the skies, the flames that shot so high and hot that even dragons burned, would never be the final sight that fell upon their eyes. A fly upon a wall, the waves the sea wind whipped and churned, the city of a thousand years and all that men had learned, the doom consumed it all alike, 
and neither of them turned. So it seems to be about these two lovers kind of embracing yeah. each other as the city burned and refusing to look at it, um, instead to just look at each other. So I was kind of wondering, maybe is this foreshadowing something in the show or in the storyline? The only thing I could think of was um, the Winterfell storyline when Theon and Jane are hugging each other as they jump off the, the walls of Winterfell. Um, but maybe it's something in you know future mm. books, we don't know. But it's a lovely poem, yeah. I did like how it was used as sort of a, a bonding moment between Jorah and Tyrion, because mm. the show Jorah especially, uh, and I'm not sure about book Jorah, but show Jorah, A, because he's acted by Ian Glenn, who's just a smooth guy, but also we like <laughs> see him earlier in the series, he gives Danny like all the books of stories mm. from the Seven Kingdoms, so he's clearly quite a well-read and sort of the type of guy that enjoys this sort of history. And Tyrion's Tyrion, he's very much the same. And I like how that's the, the, the common ground they get is reciting it's, historical poetry. Uh, Tyrion even makes a comment like, long silences and the occasional punch in the face. The more <laughs> punch in the way. face. Uh, so, you know, Tajora is posed as this big dumb brute, but then you have him, yeah, reciting this piece of poetry. And it's like, no, this is actually a human being with thoughts and feelings and, and knowledge and a life before this and dreams and all that. And it is, yeah, it's a nice bonding moment when Tyrion says, I would clap if I could, and Jorah gives his little smile. Um, but what did you think of the Stone Men, Joseph? Uh, yeah, no, I think they had that menacing year to them. Like, they weren't sort of hyped up as some silly fantasy creature. It seemed just kind of quite grounded, but quite menacing. Hmm. Like, I, I may be misremembering, but I think there's a shot where they're, like, heading up to the bridge, and you just see, out of focus, the silhouette just standing there, and... and when I saw that, that's just sort of like, oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. And then it just jumps into the water. Yeah, great moment. Mm, yeah, the, the whole thing was just well shot. And the, watching Tyrion scramble up and down the boat while Jorah's just playing a whack-a-mole with the oar. It <laughs> yeah. was quite, quite funny and tense at the same time. Yeah, it was a good moment of panic and, uh, and horror. They sort of hearken to the White Walkers, maybe? The dead coming back to haunt us? I don't know. That's that's sort of the closest we get to the White Walkers without actually seeing the White Walkers, these dead creatures made of stone. So I don't know if there's anything magic about them or it's just sort of disease, like a leper colony, but uh, but they did feel very zombie-like. I think it's it's pretty much just leprosy. Probably, there's, there's yeah. There's like, sort of fantasy leprosy that makes them into these terrifying monster-like creatures. But does that, I guess, so does that also turn your brain to mush? I don't th- yeah, I guess, mm, it, well, it might have some sort of syphilitic effect, whereas it progresses, you just become slowly more and more crazy until you're sort of, well, maybe rabies would be another good example, how just uh. sort of gradual degeneration and increased aggression as it progresses. Um, I thought the shot of Drogon flying overhead was also stunning. I think that's probably the first time this season that Tyrion's... We've seen a bit of excitement from him since he left King's Landing. Uh, it's it's almost like he's found something to live for again. Um, that's also probably one of the weirdest detox cruises ever. <laughs> yeah, you got to wonder how much stuff Tyrion was seeing in addition to the scary vistas, dragons, and undead stone people. Dude, are you seeing stone men as well? Yes, run! <laughs> like, wow, this is hitting me harder than I thought it would. No, no, it's there. I'm tripping out, man. <laughs> yeah, it was overall just a very existential scene, I thought. And I think it ties really well with John and Danny because it's almost like 
no matter what they do, this grand civilization just kind of ended in ruin, you know, the greatest civilization the world has ever seen. They've never even been able to emulate those kinds of cities, that kind of technology, that kind of magic. And so for all the everything that they that John and Danny sacrifice, every all the reforms they try and commit, it could just all end in ash. And um or maybe the other way to look at it is maybe that's the fate that awaits them if John or Danny should fail, if they should become unable to stop the, the, the darkness or whatever from, from all rolling in. I hadn't thought of the connection, but it's interesting that you sort of put <laughs> Danny and John's new world they're trying to form. Uh, compare that to Valeria, because even though Valeria was quite advanced and technology and magical, that it was still a pretty like shitty place as far as social policies go. Like they were horrific slavers and uh, somewhat racist, and their just desire to subjugate all the things. True. And yeah sort of maybe Danny and John present an option that in finally doing something different they may sort of escape the fire and death of cyclic history that Valeria went through yeah that's that's a good reading too like if we don't change something this is how we're going to end up if we don't move beyond this style of living uh, find a new way mm. this is it's all going to end in ash the only other thing I had to say was, yeah, just the final shot I thought was just stunning with the, the sun setting, just rippling over the water, reflecting the two characters. Um, and did you guys notice that uh, Tyrion is gazing at the sunset? He's gazing west and Jorah is gazing east. So I thought that was nice. Like they're both, you know, they're both gazing where they want to be. They've sort of fallen through the cracks <laughs> and they, they're, they're not quite there yet, but they know where they want to head. Yeah, and, it's a beautiful uh, scene. It's a nice, it's a great, great ending scene, and so yeah, just calm, and it's not a big action moment. It's just yeah, it's poetic. It, it is kind of like a, yeah, it is very poetic, but it is kind of a sting in the tail when he looks down and sees the grayscale, which is kind of sad. Like you know, I don't know, I felt really sorry for Jorah this episode. Well, they did tease that uh, you can halt grayscale, like they did with Shireen. There might be some some really clever, learned people in Marine that can that can do Jorah a solid at Danny's behest. Yeah, maybe. We'll see, I guess. <laughs> well, uh, that concludes Krakencast for this week. Typically, we record on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time, but obviously check the forums to see if we're recording that week. You can catch the American episode reviews on Thursday with the Dragoncast and the European episodes on the weekend with the Wolfcast. So thank you for joining me, Joseph. Thank you. It's been a blast. And Silvana. Thank you. And thanks for listening. We'll see you later. So did you want to say something about uh, the Tower of the Hand essays, Silvana? Uh, yeah, um, just uh, they just announced that uh, it's already available, the ebook in uh, Kindle version in Amazon. And, oh God, I cannot buy it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, apparently there's a, there's a, I think there's a country restriction uh, for, uh, for Indonesia. Really? So yeah it, yeah, it says the title is not available for, for purchase. So, <laughs> oh. I, 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 
Yeah, but I already uh, told uh, Mark uh, about it, um, and he oh, he's, he's very kind. Uh, he sent me the first five chapters, but still, it's not the real book. <laughs> oh well, I can get it in Australia. I'll just buy it for you and just email it to you if you want. Yeah, well, maybe later because Mark said already uh, to me that he's uh, already uh, informed this to the, to Amazon. Okay. So maybe you know Indonesia will will get uh, its turn because we already can buy. Um, Kindle books since last year, so it's it's really weird that I cannot buy this title. Well, at least they're onto it. Hopefully they can sort it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems really arbitrary. Like it's maybe if it was a big publishing house, but the fact it's just sort of put out by just a bunch of fans as but a is, thing. It is. Is it Indonesia that's blocking it? Um, I know. I mean, I I can buy buy books from from uh, for for other titles, but but not this one. Which is weird. I mean, see, even since the pre-order uh, came up, it's, uh, it's, it's Kindle. Who cares? Like, it's not a physical copy. It's just <laughs> yeah. But but we even got or in, or, or only got uh, you know the, the the ability to purchase just last year. Uh, before uh, yeah, we got country restriction. I think maybe because of a copyright issue. I don't know. Okay. But yeah, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm waiting. <laughs> but so meanwhile, I'll just read the first five chapters. It's uh, uh it's Westeros, Indonesia. You guys need your cut. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and I really want to uh, have an uh, another episode about it because since uh, I was in the in the last episode uh, for the A Flight of Sorrow, so it's. I, oh yeah, yeah. We should do uh, another episode. I think it's great the... if I can join the the next one. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. We should do another one. Yeah, yeah. I saw the titles. They're they're they're, they're they looks fantastic. Did you uh, read the all... uh, the one that Amin wrote on the food? Yes, the the songs and the oh, singers. Sorry, the songs. Yeah, the songs and the singers. Yeah, yeah songs and great. singers of ice and fire. Yes, I read it. I thought that was better um, than any of the essays. Saw some great titles here. Oh yeah, definitely definitely a, a, an improvement. Yeah, yeah. And they got also uh, several new writers here. The ones from History of uh, Westeros. Uh, they're writing about uh, the curse of Heron the Black. So that should be interesting. Uh, I really like their, their podcast as well. Very uh, informative. And yeah, you, you got the usual suspects. Uh, Stephen Atwell, Stephen Sasse. Uh, there's a new guy. I, I don't remember. Jim McGeehan. Have you, have you heard of him? Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. I think okay, oh, maybe he's one of the Tower of the Hand writers. Uh, hey, and you are already a Tower of the Hand writers, Duncan. Oh, I've, I've done two <laughs> essays. I did, I did an essay back in February about uh, about cheerily cheerily titled "Grief and Addiction" in a song of ice and fire. <laughs> it's a good one. Did you read it? Yeah, of course. Oh, it was a big I read, one. It's about four thousand words, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I always love you know reading all these essays. You know, fake history and all. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we do more research on fake history than real history. Yeah, yeah, it's it's more and more interesting. So yeah, maybe you can write for the for the next uh, Tower of the Handbooks. Oh, they keep offering me. I just don't have time to write forty four thousand word essays on. I can, I can I can say to Mark, hey, there's this guy Duncan. He wants to write. No, no, that's what I'm saying. They keep asking me. Oh, can you give us another oh, okay. essay? And I'm like, they don't have time. These things take ages to write. Uh, I mean, I, I enjoy it. It's just like it's time consuming. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I think I think I have to write another one uh, in June. So I probably better get that organized. <laughs> It's okay. just for the website though. It's not for like publish like for a book or anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's basically that's uh, all I want to say. So maybe we should get a call to arms uh, thread, but we'll see. I, I, hopefully, I, I will get the copy. When, when's it coming out? Um, I think it's already coming out. It's already in the store. Oh, 
Okay, yeah, Me? actually, it probably yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It. Okay, yeah, I better get on that and I'll work my way through yeah. it. And yeah, we can try and organize a podcast for it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is All that right. everything? Yep. Okay. Thanks for coming Thank on, you guys. so much for hosting. That's okay. We'll see you nice next Nice to week, meet maybe. you, Joseph. Yes, yeah. yep. hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's heating up. The season's heating up, so I'm sure we'll get more. <laughs> oh, yeah, another, another episode by Cogman next week, so oh, fingers really? crossed ah. it'll be a good oh, one. Hell yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah and I we think... got Arya. Yeah, Arya's mm. back, yep. Yeah. Marin Trance, um, not long for this world. Yeah. Yeah. And Olena Tyrell is back. Oh, yes. Olena versus mm. Cersei. Guess that should be interesting. Stannis mm. and Ramsey, yeah, Stannis and Roos quivering in their boots. <laughs> right, I'll see you guys. I'll see you guys. Take care. See you on the farm. Bye.